I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're in the second part of the message, from the mountain to the valley. Mark chapter 9, Jesus and Peter, James, and John are coming off the Mount of Transfiguration. They are about to encounter a serious problem that the other disciples have not been able to handle. Uh, we love mountaintops. We love mountaintop experiences. We love those moments when it seems that the presence of God is so thick you could cut it with a knife. But we were not made to live on mountaintops. We were made to live and serve in the valleys. It is not so much what happens when we gather in worship. It is what we do when we leave worship and meet a hurting, desperate, diseased, corrupt, fallen world and how we live out our faith in that kind of world that proves whether or not our worship was real or we just came for a moment to forget about the world. But the reason we come to church is to go out of the church and to be the church to live out the life of Christ in this world. This world is fearful, and a fearful world needs a fearless church. Two questions. Are we ready to tackle the new needs in this new valley that we're walking in? Are we ready? This is a different world than what we started with in January. It may never go back the same. If it does, great, but it probably won't. Things will be different. Are we ready to tackle the new needs in this valley? And are we prayerfully positioned for new approaches to ministry? What if we can't do some things we used to do? Are we just going to quit and give up and fold our Bibles up and say, well, Lord, I guess that's it. I guess the church can't be effective. Or are we going to find ways to do ministry that maybe we never thought about up until this point? The early church did not say, man, the Romans are going to kill us. Let's all quit going to church. The early church did not say, there is oppression for standing for Jesus. Let's just be quiet. And so I want us to look at the failure in the valley. As they're coming down off this mountain, they discover the disciples have been faced with what seems to be an impossible situation. A father has brought his son to the disciples, and the disciples can't heal him. And one of the things that's going on at the bottom is the scribes are just laying it on the nine disciples that are down there. I mean, they are criticizing them, they are mocking them, they are questioning them. Why? Because if you want to get to the leader, you get the followers. If you want to get to the followers, you go after the leader. And so this is a method of attack of the scribes to say, you guys say you're something. You guys say this is the Messiah. You guys have said you've had power to cast out demons. Now look at you. You got one guy with his son, and you can't do anything about it. They had an opportunity and a problem, and all the disciples saw was the problem. They couldn't cast the demon out. Now, 
there's some preachers that will just say that this boy had epilepsy and they'll just ignore the demonic aspect to it. But the Bible is clear that Jesus tells them there's a demon involved in this. By the way, I don't see demons under every rocks, but if you don't believe there's demonic activity going on in the world today, you are sadly biblically illiterate because it's going on everywhere. Your neighborhood, my neighborhood, our town, other people's towns, our nation, other nations. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Look at verse 25. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. We are in spiritual warfare. The battle is real. And the cynics and the critics of the church are standing and laughing and mocking at a church that seems to be inept or deaf and mute when it comes to addressing the problems of this world. We would rather just have our holy huddles and just sing kumbaya than deal with a world that is dirty and nasty and mean and is unraveling at every corner of society. Here's the problem. When the church fails to walk by faith, it's powerless. When the church fails to walk by faith, it's powerless. The reason that the church in America is not confronting the darkness is because we don't walk by faith. We don't really believe that God is still the God of his word. We don't believe that God has the power. Somehow he's removed himself or he's gotten old and he's gotten weak and he's gotten feeble and he just can't do what he used to could do. I would submit to you he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just as strong today as he was then. And when the church is powerless, it gives the critics a platform to mock us. When the church is powerless, when people come and say, well, you say Jesus is the answer, but we don't have answers and we don't have power, then they mock us and say, see, why are those people even around? Why do we have Bibles? We don't need Bibles. We don't need churches. Let's just get rid of all these people. It's happened in cultures before. It could happen in our culture. We better find a way to get the power of God or be considered irrelevant from now on. How they failed? They couldn't help a man with his son in verse 14. They failed to exercise faith, verses 16 and 19 and 28 and 29. And look at what the Father says. I ask your disciples to cast him out, and they could not do it. Now, when you read the parallel passages, like in Matthew's gospel, you will discover that the disciples lacked three things. First of all, they lacked faith, they lacked prayer, and they lacked fasting. Matthew records this, this kind 
this kind of demonic activity, this kind of oppression, this kind of spiritual warfare only comes out by prayer and fasting. They didn't have enough faith, they didn't pray enough, and they weren't fasting. And so they met an obstacle like they had never met before. They met a demonic activity like they had never met before. They were walking into a new normal and these nine were failing to meet the need of the moment. Now let me say that they had faith. But here's what they had faith in. They had faith in their previous formulas. Well, you know, the last time when Jesus sent us out, we cast out demons, so we'll just do it the same way that we did it then. And so what they trusted in was a formula, not in the power of God. Isn't that like us today? I mean, well, we did it this way in 1950. Shouldn't it still work today? We're in a different world. I mean, Andy Griffith is dead. Barney's dead. Ernest T. Bass is dead. Somebody's throwing rocks, but it's not Ernest T. Bass. I mean, we're in a different world. And we've got to wake up to the world we live in, not the world we wish we lived in. We would all like to live in a world where we could just pull the curtains and just look out on a sunny day and no problems. But that's not the world that we live in today. Their problem was they had faith in a formula. And the problems with formulas is in a certain season they will die. Churches will die that trust formulas. Churches will die that think you reach young people right now the same way you reach young people in the 1950s or 60s or 70s. The church has to engage the next generation. Satan, self, and sin are robbing us of a generation of disciples. Now here's Here's the issue, and this is going to make all of us a little uncomfortable. The issue is, if we were just honest with God, what we would like is a church that reached church preschoolers and church children and church young people and church college students. We don't want to reach those that don't have a church background. We don't want to reach those that we have to explain to them who Nicodemus is and where the Gospels are. We don't want to reach those that have been physically, verbally, sexually abused and show up at our doors with baggage because we are so holy that we don't want our kids exposed to kids that have been exposed to bad stuff. Guess what? They're being exposed anyway. But the world doesn't have any answers for them. We don't want to have those kids that are coming out of gangs or coming out of drugs. Well, who else is going to reach them? So when the church says, we just want good kids that know how to behave, that know how to act, that know how to dress like they're supposed to dress, that know how to have good manners. When we say that, we are saying to billions of children in the world, go to hell. We don't care about your destiny. That's what we're saying. 
when we drive by and hope that those kind of people don't show up at our church, we're just saying we would just assume that they go to hell. When we don't care about the helpless and the hopeless, we're saying we don't care about their spiritual destiny. Can we reach them all? No. Can we reach some? Yes. Should we try harder? Yes. Should we pray harder? Yes. Should we start new ways of doing things? Yes, we should. Here's one of the problems with schools not figuring out how to get started. One of the main ways that you find out about abuse, sexual, physical, verbal abuse, is in schools when kids tell teachers. If we're just having education online, who is that kid going to talk to? Who are they going to tell that their uncle or their dad or their brother or their sister is verbally or physically or sexually abusing them? Who are they going to be able to talk to? So we further isolate and we further insulate and we just pretend that it's not going on and hope that it never touches us. When the church acts this way, ladies and gentlemen, it is not the church. It's not the church. The devil is intent on destroying the next generation. We have a sign out there that says whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. It's going to take a different way of thinking and a different way of acting and a different way of serving for us to reach this generation that is being influenced in ways that we never even imagined. We've given the next generation to the devil by default because we don't want to pay the price to reach them. Out in this world, on Whispering Pines, on Doncaster, on Barnesdale, on Acker, on all the streets around us, our kids that are living in oppression and pain and fear and hurt and distrust. And they have parents or single parents who are dealing with depression and anger and are suicidal. And the church just wants things to be back like they were. That is not going to change the world. Satan is bent on destroying the image of God in man. One commentator has said he loves to take people to the lowest common denominator. As I was looking over my notes uh, this morning, uh, I was reminded of Andy Andrews' book, How Do You Kill 11 Million People? And How Do You Kill 11 Million People was written to tell the story of how the Jews were killed during World War II. One of the prime illustrations in that book, and you should read it, one of the prime illustrations is that the church was silent while the Jews were being taken to concentration camps. FDR knew it. The Pope knew it. Winston Churchill knew it. They all knew it. And they were silent because they thought if you're silent, Hitler will just stop at some point. Don't ever believe that the devil is going to stop if the church is silent. He's not. 
And so as they loaded the Jews onto rail cars and stacked them in up against each other where some of them suffocated before they even got to the concentration camps, the churches that were located along the rail lines knew what time the trains would run and they would cue the choir and the organist to play louder and to sing louder so that they would not hear the cries of the men and women and boys and girls on those trains being taken to their death. The church said, let's just sing louder and then we won't hear the cries of a dying world. That's where we are today. That's where we are today. We just want to get back to feeling comfortable. And we talk about what's wrong with the world. I mean, Terry and I have had these conversations. We had these conversations with our family. We talk about what's wrong with the world while we're ordering dessert. We talk about what's wrong with the world while we're going to get takeout. You know, this world is just a mess. But where is the church? Where's the voice of the church? Where's the cry of anguish? Where's the cry of prayer that says, God, give us wisdom, give us passion, give us the resources to do what we need to do to impact this world and not just let it go off because we're silent. Look at this conversation between this father and Jesus, verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Here's what you need to remember. It's not the ability of Jesus that needs to be called into question. It's our ability to believe. It's not the ability of Jesus that needs to be called into question. It's our ability to believe. Jesus spoke to the disciples about their unbelief. He spoke to this father about his faith. If you can do anything, that's an honest plea. Can I tell you, there are people that are not calling our church or any other church. They're not knocking on our door or any other church door that are asking the question as they ride by, I wonder if those people can do anything. You say, well, we do a lot of things. How do they know? How do they know? You know, we can say, well, we've done hand sanitizer, we've done food distribution, everything else, and basically out of 3,000 members of this church, there might be 300 that actually have said something about us doing that. Have told anybody. I mean, it's like we're, we, we could do great things and just let's make sure we keep it a secret. Let's make sure we don't tell anybody. Let's make sure that we don't get more needs than we can meet. I mean, that's what the disciples did at the feeding of the 5,000. Let's just send them away. Let's just get rid of them. They're not our problem. Yes, they are our problem. God put us in this town for a reason. And he put us here to serve this community. What Jesus can do is never the problem. He is the God who can. Look at this man. I do believe, help my unbelief. The Father says, if you can, Jesus says, of course I can. Of course I can. Have you ever listened to a preacher try to explain why miracles don't happen anymore? I mean, it's the most pathetic use of time of anything I've ever heard. Of course he can. 
Now, does he always do everything we want him to do? No, he doesn't because he's sovereign and we're not. And he's not a puppet to be used by us. And this is not a name it, claim it, get whatever you want, when you want, how you want kind of gospel. This is about us stepping out in faith when we see a need and we're confronted with a need, we believe that God makes all things possible. Matthew says that the father got on his knees at surrender and humility. Luke records that this was this man's only son. And if you look at this passage, the father is not just pleading for his son. He is also asking God, help me to have the faith I need in this moment. Help me to believe what you can do. Help me to know what you can do. And then you look at verses 28 and 29. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Faith that has power is faith that prays. Faith that has power is faith that prays. Now Matthew adds prayer and fasting, but either one, it's going to require a new level of understanding of what it means to get before God if we're going to meet the new challenges of this new valley we're in. It's going to require us to think differently, to pray differently, to intercede, to boldly approach the throne of grace. We've got to pray in a different way. Now look at the failure to apply truth. The rest of this chapter deals with reminders and some discussions among the disciples, which at some point in this chapter, I think Jesus just rolled his eyes and went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Jesus makes it clear there's no Christianity without the cross. In verses 30 through 32, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has talked to them about the cross. He's going to do it again in the next chapter. But instead of understanding what Jesus just said, Jesus just said, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And he doesn't even get those words out of his mouth and the disciples start having a discussion about who's the greatest among them. I mean, you want to talk about a message just going over somebody's head. I mean, you know, I mean, it just went right over their head. Hey, I'm going to suffer and die. Jesus, how can, what can we do? How can we help? They start having a discussion on who's going to be greatest. You know, not much has changed. We still like to argue about titles and positions and and honor, and glory, and fame, and, and we still, we, I mean, listen, we have a celebrity cult mentality in the Christian church. Well, I, you know, we're, we're just like the time of Paul. You know, I'm of this Bible teacher, and I'm of that Bible teacher, and I'm, I'm of this pastor, and, and I'm of that pastor, and then somebody says, well, I'm of Christ, so I'm, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We're still arguing about greatness. Jesus said, if you want to be great, what? 
Serve. You serve. The spirit of competition with others is not the attitude of kingdom-minded disciples. The spirit of competition with others is not the attitude of kingdom-minded disciples. Can I tell you something? The other Baptist churches in this town are not our competition. The Methodist churches in this town are not our competition. The Presbyterian churches in this town, name the church, they're not our competition. We're in such a mess, we need to figure out how to get together. We don't need to figure out how to compete. And most of what churches are doing are just swapping sheep from one sheep pen to another, but we're not reaching lost people. We're not reaching a lost world. To reinforce what Jesus expects of us, look at what he does. I mean, they're talking about, hey, we want to be great. And Jesus gets this child and puts this child in his lap to illustrate a point. The child had no authority. The child had no influence. The child had no power. The child had no rights. And Jesus said, if you want to be great, think about how you treat these kids. Think about how you love these kids. Think about how you think about these kids. He puts them in his lap. They're vulnerable. If you want to be great, care for those that the world doesn't care about. Care for the least and the lost. And then we come right out of that. I mean, this Mark is so fast-paced in what he does here. So Jesus is talking about the cross. They start talking about greatness, and they're trying to figure out, jockey for position, you know, who's going to get to be in the front of the line? Who gets to go through the buffet first? I mean, who gets to sit and shot, ride shotgun and not get squeezed into the back of the disciple bus? I mean, who, who's going to get to be in the prime position here? And no sooner does Jesus put that child in a lap that I, my speculation is John wants to change the subject. And so he begins talking about somebody that's casting out demons. And this comes up after the nine have failed to deal with that one demon-possessed boy. John comes up and, and he starts talking about, hey, well, we saw somebody casting out demons. Here's why. Ministering to children doesn't appeal to people who think they're great. Ministering to children doesn't appeal to people who think they're great. We got a lot of kids with a lot of needs. And there are hundreds of them that are at a school right across the street. Many of them walk across this church campus five days a week. I wonder when's the last time our hearts broke for what's going on in the homes of the kids that are right there. And the kids that are just a mile or so down the road at Westover and the kids that are at Mary Acres Middle School, I mean that are in our neighborhood. When's the last time our hearts were broken that these kids are being raised in a jaded world. And so John wants to change the subject, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him 
because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. I want you to look back at verse 38 and circle it. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. It doesn't say we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you, Jesus. It says we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Here's what they were saying. He's, this guy that was casting out demons, I mean, he was casting out demons. Now, why open your mouth that a guy is able to cast out demons when none of you have been unable to do it? So you criticize somebody for doing something that you're not able to do because he's not following us. Well, if he'd been following us, he wouldn't have been able to cast out the demon. There's a logical conclusion. Well, he's not in our group. He's not in our clique. And he's successful. We failed, but we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Paul dealt with the same thing in Philippians chapter 1. When people questioned why, you know, why God was allowing some people to be used that were even critical of Paul. You see, we don't think God can use anybody that's not like us. I mean... Let's be honest. We all think if everybody was like us, the world would be a better place. We don't think God can use anybody that's not like us. We don't think God can use anybody outside of our denomination. We don't think anybody can use a method of evangelism that we don't use. And then we get to arguing with people, and I, would, I wish some things never existed because I see people arguing salvation theology on Twitter while the world is going to hell. And the Calvinists are screaming, and the Arminians are screaming, and, and the world's going to hell, and they're not winning anybody to Jesus. By the way, the people that do that stuff the most, just track and see if they've ever said, you know, we, this is our salvation theology. Track and see if they've ever said they've led anybody to Christ. They're like beggars arguing over a wallet, and all of them are broke. Oh, they, well, they, you don't believe in pre-trib rapture. You believe in mid-trib, or you believe in post-trib, or you believe in this. I can't have fellowship with you. Listen, this world is in serious trouble. I don't really care whether you believe in pre, mid, post, or no Let's figure out how to get as many people in heaven as we can before Jesus comes back or we all die. I mean, let's quit arguing. Well, you know, uh, I, I can't read anything he writes because he believes in limited atonement. Well, he baptized a thousand people last year. How many did your church baptize? Well, we didn't baptize anybody, but we're true to our doctrine. No, you're not. Well, we can't follow that guy because he believes in this. Listen, the cause of Christ is greater than any person or any position. 
We've got to get to Jesus. We've got to get past these things that divide us and get to the things that unite us. And the one thing that unites us is the cross of Christ. And none of us has a monopoly on the Lord Jesus. None of us do. So when you meet someone who loves Jesus, before you pick them apart, try to love them. I mean, before you start defriending them or whatever you're going to, just love them. Find out what you can agree on. One of my favorite things that one of the people that I, I love and respect the most is Jimmy Draper because I've watched Jimmy Draper through the years, through decades, take people that vehemently disagreed with him, that wrote articles accusing him, blaming him, pointing fingers at him when he was a part of the conservative resurgence in Southern Baptist Convention and ask him, can we go out to eat? I'd just like to sit down and talk with you. I just finished a biography on Reagan and um, I just was curious to read it, and I finished a biography on Reagan. And it's amazing how many times he writes in his diary about having a conversation with someone he disagreed with or who disagreed with him, and he ends the diary entry with, I think I made a friend today. Don't you think we could get more ground covered if we made more friends and less enemies? I mean, if, we, if our goal was to, what can we find that we can join hands on? That we can join our hearts together? And Jesus talks about salt. And salt is salty. It, it keeps from corruption. It, it was a symbol of the covenant. And if we want to see God work, and if we want to see God move, and if we want to come out of this with an opportunity for God to send a fresh move of His Spirit, we have got to stop some things, and we have got to start some things. And we have got to pray more than we've prayed. We've got to love more than we've loved. We've got to forgive more than we've forgiven and we've got to walk a mile in some other people's shoes before we tell them how to walk. Because I may not know everything, but I know this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I know this, if we want to see more people in heaven, we've got to share the gospel more. If we want to see more people in heaven, we've got to love children and young people more. If we want to see a reduction in crime and gangs and hate, then the church has to step in to the void and the vacuum that politics can not fill. The church is the only place that has the hope of the world, and the hope of the world is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts break.
at the multiple, multiple crises that are going on in this world. It's senseless. It's satanic. It's selfish. And this world needs a savior. That savior is Jesus. Lord, may we be the church that meets the need of the hour. That sees the signs that are going on all around us. The chaos and the confusion, the wars and rumors of wars and anarchy and hatred. Lord, we must be salt and light. We're in a valley, a new valley, a valley we've never walked through before. A valley that too often finds us powerless and helpless. Lord, may we be the church, not just this church, but may you put a spirit of a burden for a lost world inside of every church in our community that we would rise to the moment that we find ourselves in, that we would call on all the forces of heaven. Father, we understand this world system has an aggressive strategy, and we must meet it with a more aggressive strategy. In the midst of absolute dictatorship and oppression, the church reach the known world because it would not be silent and it would not submit to a compromised faith. Take us back to that kind of love and that kind of commitment. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.